Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the Chinese trade delegation is in Washington, D.C. They are meeting with the U.S. delegation uh, today and tomorrow. Uh, President Trump just tweeted out that he will meet with Vice Premier Liu He uh, tomorrow, suggesting that there may be some light at the end of this trade tunnel. To get the latest, there is absolutely nobody better to speak to than Leland Miller. He is the CEO of the China Beige Book International. Uh, he joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Leland, thanks so much for joining us on what could be a very, very important two days for the U.S. and China and the overall uh, financial markets. What is your sense of what would be a success here over the next couple of days? Well, I think expectations have been peeled back dramatically over the last, say, 12 to 24 hours, simply because there's been a lot of bad news. I mean, earlier this week, you saw sanctions against Chinese companies and visa restrictions on Chinese individuals. Uh, and then, you know, the threat the Chinese were going to leave early. And then and, and, uh, so it's been nothing but bad news. But look, the, a lot of what's happening with the administration on China is getting more aggressive. On the other hand, they still have a desire to reach a deal on trade, a medium mini deal on trade in 2019 if they can get what they want, which means more than ag purchases, they need the Chinese to start delivering on some of the substantive commitments from the May text. Uh, but that's where this is going, tariff punts and pullbacks in return for some substantive uh, concessions and some ag buys. Here's the reason why there's a lot of confusion right now. We're getting mixed messages. On one hand, it seems like uh, the U.S. is kind of drilling down and trying to get some serious concessions uh, and, and going after even just the investment, the flows of capital from the U.S. into China. And on the other hand, uh, it looks like uh, we're more amenable to some sort of agricultural deal. What do we make of this sort of push-pull? Well, there really are two tracks that are forming within the administration. This has always been true. But I think right now what you're seeing is that people focused on the national security side are really digging in and getting more aggressive. And you are seeing uh, more um, more moves against Chinese companies and against Chinese individuals. And, and you are also seeing... Um, Things on the the pension money side, U.S. government pension money is, is is being looked at very closely in terms of how to roll that away from going into Chinese companies and and then into the into the PLA as they would as they would say. Um, on the other hand, trade is being handled a little bit differently, and there is a belief within the White House that the best case scenario for President Trump and his reelection is to scale the tariffs back. To, to sort of cruise through 2020 in, at 250 billion, if they can do that, uh, so putting a lot of pressure on the Chinese, but not too much pressure to hurt the U.S. economy, getting those ag buys in return, and that's the sweet spot. It doesn't mean they can get that; they're not just going to give that away. But that's what they're angling for if they can get some substantive concessions back from the Chinese. Well, I, I think the one of the issues is October and the tariffs; they're scheduled to go up again. Is that something you think is on the table today and tomorrow? Let's maybe table those things? Yeah, the October tariffs are misunderstood, and they're probably the trickiest part of this entire discussion. December, the, the White House is laser-focused on trying to get rid of December tariffs, because I think they, they, they can, most people are convinced that they'd be bad for the U.S. economy. September is also on the table. It's, it's part of the discussion to pull back on September tariffs if the U.S. can get the concessions on IP. But October is very interesting, because the U.S. side is not very focused on October. 
but markets are. Markets are looking at this uh, October tariff hikes as this bellwether for whether the U.S. is going to move forward with a potential deal or a deal is dead. And I think it's a mistake because there's just not enough attention being put on those October tariffs right now. They're a minor, they're a minor issue for the White House. But they're a huge issue for markets, and that's where you could have some miscommunications. There seems to be, though, a disconnect also with the market looking at a trade deal as sort of a comprehensive one-track thing. And you're talking about a two-track issue. I'm wondering how China looks at the U.S.'s two-track approach. Can they isolate some of the capital flow issues and some of the IP issues completely while they deal with sort of immediate tariffs and agricultural purchases in order to get a narrow deal? Or are they going to be put off by some of the other demands and and sort of uh, crackdowns? I think they're definitely put off by it, but I think they can also see they can some reap some rewards from it. So while this trade talk, these talk, trade talks are going on, we've also heard word that magically we're going to start seeing some Huawei spatial licenses. Now Huawei has been separated from the trade talks. The Chinese agreed to do that. Uh, everyone agreed it was a good idea, and magically, even though the things are connected, you're seeing some movement on Huawei while the trade talks have some potential to move forward. So what you do is you ring fence these things. But I think the Chinese understand that uh, good things can happen for them if they make President Trump happy and bad things will probably happen if they don't. And so a lot of this is, is, is whether things are formally connected versus everything is informally connected in some way. 20 seconds. What's the probability of us seeing some sort of a deal, however narrow, within the next couple of days? I think you. I don't think you'll see a deal, but what you could see is the outline of what would be the White House and the Chinese understanding of what a deal would be for 2019, along the lines of what I've already explained. Uh, but I think that is more, much more likely than than gloomy markets have been uh, expecting for the last day or so. Of course, we saw something akin to that in February, and uh, well. We saw where that went. Leland Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Leland Miller, Chief Executive Officer of China Beige Book International with an incredible view into uh, everything having to do with the trade negotiations as well as, frankly, the Chinese economy. Uh, He's been prescient on how the slowdown has accelerated more than some of the official numbers have been suggesting. So it looks like perhaps we may get another report about Amazon spying on people through their uh, camera security service. Here to explain all the ins and outs, Shira Ovide. Uh, she's a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. So Amazon st- spying on us. Is that, the, uh, is that the bottom line here? Well, yes. And I think we already knew that. We the, already knew that. The, the companies, you know, Echo, home speakers, and related devices powered by its Alexa voice assistant, that, you know, they're used as sort of data collection machines so that Amazon, in part, so Amazon can improve the technology behind Alexa. But what our colleagues in, uh, in Europe and on the West Coast here reported overnight uh, is that Amazon has sort of human reviewers overseas basically looking at snippets of video from CloudCam, which is Amazon's kind of home motion detection security camera. Um, There are people reviewing those snippets of video, again, for use in kind of training the artificial intelligence software behind Alexa. And, you know, Amazon says this is 
more or less disclose that people are doing it voluntarily, either kind of Amazon employees or others, or people choosing to have these snippets reviewed by people because there's some kind of crash or bug. But, you know, sources told Bloomberg News that in some cases, the video snippets were things that people would probably not voluntarily give up, including, in some cases, snippets of people having sex. Yeah. So do people, do we know, is it clear whether consumers opt into this or is it not clear that- well i mean as you as you can see from the, the sort of examples of very sensitive yes. people are probably not opting into having snippets of them having sex reviewed by humans um so amazon says this is voluntary there's obviously some dispute about that and look i wrote a piece uh, that published today that's basically asking is sort of opting in or is disclosure in fine print really enough like no one who buys a home motion detection security camera is really expecting that somewhere in india or romania there are people sitting there at computers reviewing little snippets okay. of their from inside their homes Honestly, though, if you put a camera in your home and you're asking a company to provide some sort of security, come on. I mean, at a certain point, the likelihood of someone actually reviewing that is not insignificant. And you're basically asking them to do it. You're just hoping that the bots are better at it than the humans, which it turns out they're not always. So, I mean, honestly, what alternative is there? No, I think I think that's a fair point that. Um, and I think that's a, an attitude that lots of people have, that what do you expect if you are buying one of these devices, whether it's a voice-activated speaker or a, a cell phone that we carry around with, with us everywhere we go, what do you expect? Of course, they're always listening or watching. But I, I feel like there is some kind of limit to this, right? That this is a, a case of boiling the frog slowly. <laughs> Maybe we got okay, although we shouldn't be okay, with the idea that everything we do online and in the real world is basically being monitored and tracked by you know Google or Facebook or Apple or one of these other gigantic tech companies. Again, we should not be okay with that, but over time, we got kind of inured to that. But I feel like humans reviewing audio clips of sort of what we ask Siri, or again, video snippets from footage inside of our homes being reviewed by humans, that feels like a different level. And the same thing with sort of these kind of facial recognition cameras. Again, this is all about collecting as much data as possible and then using human reviewers to kind of train the next generation of the software to make it smarter and more automated. But we're, we're basically human guinea pigs for technology, and we did not agree to this. Just because you buy a home security camera doesn't mean you agree to be a free guinea pig for a big technology company. But as you suggested earlier, it just seems like we're part, we're on this continuum, uh, we as consumers, of giving up more and more and more of our personal security, our personal privacy in the name of technological you know, improvements or just ease you know, whether it's credit card numbers or access to our homes. But we all know this and people still buy the devices. So I've got to say at a certain point, you know, it hasn't been shown to be uh, materially harmful so far. And that is the question. At what point will it reach a tipping point and will the frog be boiled? (laughs) 
Yeah, that's. I, I mean, to me, the boiling frog, the, the dead frog moment is humans <laughs> reviewing video video footage from you inside don't have my one home. Of those at your home. I definitely do not have one of those. <laughs> no, but I, I think that's a very fair point. Is sort of do people really care about this, or do they care enough about it to not buy one of these devices? And I think the easy answer is people don't care. I think it's more nuanced than that. There, people definitely do care. We do see obviously, gro- you know, pretty significant growth of um, people purchasing yep. uh, uh, Echo devices and similar kinds of home automation or, or voice assistant technologies. But I don't think that necessarily means people are tacitly cool with kind of perpetual surveillance <laughs> by gigantic rich technology companies. companies. Right. Yeah, if you put it that way, I'm sure. Shira Oveday, thank you so much for joining us. Shira's a technology columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You can read more of Shira's uh, work and more from Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, I'm sorry, Bloomberg Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. And you can do it on the terminal as well by typing O-P-I-N-Go. President Trump saying that he is willing to meet with China's top delegate as trade talks heat up in Washington, D.C. Joining us now to discuss Mike McDonough, chief economist for financial products for Bloomberg LP. He is down there in Washington, D.C. Mike, are you uh, taking part in the trade negotiations? I I am not. uh, But I do think that that meeting, the uh, agreement to have that meeting is probably a pretty big deal. Really? I I, I do, actually, because I, I don't think... I mean, from my own perspective, President Trump hasn't seemed to be one to deliver bad news face to face. He seems to, uh, when things are going poorly, he seems to have other people communicate that message or he does it indirectly via Twitter. So the fact that there is an agreement and a meeting occurring uh, makes me think that's a positive sign. Mind you, there's a meeting occurring as of right now. Ten minutes from now, we don't know, right? That could change. Uh, but assuming, I, I think one of the riskiest headlines you could see right now is that that meeting's canceled. Actually, yeah, exactly. Um, so, Mike, is is it your sense that from the Chinese side they would be happy with kind of a you know a light trade agreement or even uh, you know a signed document that we're going to continue talking and interim tariffs are going to be delayed? Is there is there a sense from your side that I, China would do that? I absolutely get that sense. I think that the mentality has changed pretty dramatically uh, from earlier in the year uh, to where uh, something is better than nothing. Uh, and let's you know try to get some agreement, uh, kick the can, I guess you could say, on some of the larger issues. Uh, but you know, it, it get something out of the way to at least remove the uncertainty from the market of how bad this could potentially get. So, Mike, we were speaking with Leland Miller of China Beige Book earlier in the show, and he was talking about sort of two tracks to the negotiations. On one hand, you have sort of a crackdown and a hardening in the stance when it comes to things like capital flows and IP theft. And on the other hand, there seems to be a softening when it comes to trying to go back to the February agreement when it comes to agricultural deals, uh, in addition to a couple of other things. Do you see that also? You know, that makes sense. And I guess at the heart, you know, at the heart of the issues between the U.S.-China relations, you know, it's not the the trade deficit, it's not trade, it's not tariffs, it's it's some of that stuff where there there is a harder stance being taken. So I'm not shocked by that, uh, and and that sort of action may help 
hasten or expedite some of the, the, the longer-term solutions in those areas. But that is a far more complicated type of conversation than uh, whether or not well, you're going to have some tariffs on soybeans or automobiles or whatever else sure. have you. Here's my confusion. Does China see this as a two-pronged, two-separate-tracked issue? Can they come to some sort of agreement with the U.S. in order to alleviate the, the proposed tariffs that have to do with agricultural uh, goods and still be dealing with the U.S. that's hardening its stance on the other side. Well, to be clear, you know, the last time uh, we were on the show, I was mentioning I thought that there was a very high probability that we would see a ceasefire in these trade deals. And I think right now what everyone wants, uh, it, like I said, is to remove that uncertainty. From a Chinese perspective, uh, the economy has been weakening uh, a bit more uh, than I think they may have expected. So that would help alleviate some of that. And from a U.S. perspective, you're starting to see the economy turn a bit. You're starting to see sentiment diminish somewhat. Uh, and if you're the president, and you want to remain the president, uh, it's, that's, that, these are all bad inputs to your re-election odds. So, you know, both sides have a reason why they want to get some, some win, even if it's, if it's a minor win. Uh, and, and so it's solve, interesting. Like, yeah, it's interesting, Michael. What do you think would constitute a, a win here? I know expectations have been lowered, uh, probably on both sides. Um, but you know, is an agreement just to kick the can down the road? That doesn't seem like the, that would be enough for the markets. What do you think would be a, a well, quote-unquote win? I, I got a sense that, um, like I said earlier this year, that China would not accept a deal where any of the tariffs remained in place. Uh, and I think that's what the U.S. had been pushing at that time. I think now uh, the hope is we will agree to do X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, make more agricultural purchases. There's some talks about a, a currency pact. Um, they, they might have done some stuff on the margins on intellectual property uh, and make this agreement just to not have the next round of tariffs uh, in a couple days or a couple weeks, whenever that's scheduled, to be put in place. And I think from the U.S. side, you know, getting, you know, making some progress and just not putting on more tariffs and leaving the ones that are there in place uh, can probably be viewed as a win as well, at least an interim win for a ceasefire. How much agreement is there in the White House about how to approach these trade deals? Do you have a sense? I, I mean, I, I, the, the, the wild card for me in this whole thing is I sometimes don't know if President Trump knows what he's going to say before he says it. He, he might have a last minute change of heart, go up to the podium. And that's the biggest wild card in this. And then if you look at the staff, I think that you probably have um, – uh, obviously, some uh, your, your Peter Navarro's, et cetera, who have rather hawkish views on how we should be treating China, and then other members who have more dovish views. And who has influence and, and who is listened to most? I think that could be a function of how the markets are performing and how the economy is performing. Uh, if the hawkish members are saying, we should do this to China, let's take a strong stance, the markets are doing well, the economy is doing well, why not listen? Uh, suddenly things turn, uh, and the people who have a more slightly more dovish stance, said this is what we said would happen. Here's the approach we maybe should take uh, to reduce risk that we ourselves have a slowdown. And then I think they get the greater say. There's sort of an inverse relationship of how the re how the relation, the, the negotiations are going to markets. Right, exactly right. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist uh, for Financial Products at Bloomberg, joining us uh, in our DC studio.
Well, let's shift gears from global trade, from Brexit. Let's talk technology growth. We welcome Melissa DiDonato. She is the CEO of SUSE, uh, based in London, but headquartered in Germany. But she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us here uh, at Bloomberg. Just let's first off just give us a sense of what SUSE is, kind of what markets you're operating in and who, you know, who your customers are. Our, our customers are enterprise customers across the globe. So even though we're out of Germany, we're a global business. We're the largest, the world's largest independent open source company in the world right now. All right then. So you focus on providing software, et cetera, within the cloud, within the idea of uh, having something that is in the ether. So, yeah, yeah, kind of something like that. We're an, we're an open source software business, right? So, so define open source for us. Open source is a software built in a community, so there's no okay. proprietary components to open okay. source. So open is that source, Linux, for example, was it that, is. Okay, yeah. So you. the core of our business is Linux based. It's okay. we're the world's largest Linux provider, independent company in the world, um, and it's all based on open source. That's exactly right. So I guess, where is the expansion opportunity here? It seems to be a fast growing area with a lot of competition with everyone wanting to get into this. Where, where are you seeing opportunities? So um, I've been on board now for 65 days as the new CEO. I was appointed in July. Um, in my first 100 days, I've taken the mission to meet 100 customers. Um, in my first 100 days. And that includes customers and partners and vendors, and we're a very big channel business. So it's been enlightening for me. And I've been saying, you know, where do we expand? Where do we grow? We were acquired by EQT, which is a private equity firm out of Sweden, um, as our growth investor. Um, we were independent as of March of this year. So really, you know, we're looking at where do we grow? Where do we invest? Where do we spend our time? So for us, we're doubling down in the U.S. market. So that's a big one for us. Um, you know, we're looking to see how we can really transform. And during this journey in, with my customers and visiting them in the last 65 days going towards 100, the, the message has been loud. They, they want us to help them simplify, right? How do these businesses take potentially big monolithic global enterprise applications and get them at some point in their journey to the cloud? That, that's that's one. The second thing is, how do we accelerate? How do we allow ourselves as enterprise customers to SUSE really, you know, accelerate and modernize their applications as they go? So, Melissa, I saw that, you know, one of the things, I don't know much about the open source business, full disclosure, but I do know IBM made a big acquisition of Red Hat, and that was kind of interesting. Does that just suggest that maybe some of the more big, traditional, vertically integrated technology companies are thinking about open source Providers. They are absolutely thinking about open source. Open source is on the mind of everyone. And, and okay. why? Well, because it creates a borderless enterprise of solutions built with innovators across the board. So it, the software is free. You don't pay for, for our software. What we do is we support the environment, and that's how we obviously have a commercial model. But the most important thing is that open source is delivered to our customers with innovators across the globe, with interaction inside of a community. You support that environment, and that's how you make money. Please explain. Yeah, of course. So um, we like to think of ourselves as the best, um, most valuable insurance policy in the world. So what we do is we work with our customers to understand their business needs, um, what the application and the software needs to deliver through their services. So we take in part and parcel their requirements, their business solutions, and the outcome we're looking to develop. We put that into the community and we certify that release and those components into our software every year that we deliver service. And then of course, provide the maintenance on top. So ensuring that when they need help, where they need help with the kernel and above that we're there to help them. Are you expecting or getting any feelers from potentially bigger technology companies to be acquired? 
Um, maybe not quite yet. Let's not rush it. I think we want to be the acquirer rather than the inquiry. So we're you know, we're going to be are very you looking. For we are looking. Yeah, we are. We are definitely looking. We're going to grow inorganically and organically, but acquisitions are definitely in our future. So could you just give us a sense of like the competitive landscape? Who are the big players, and maybe kind of where Susa fits in there? So whilst we're the largest independent open source company in the world, we stand behind Red Hat as number one, as you probably know. They're, they're, yep. they're much larger. They're acquired for um, quite a bit of money by IBM, right. and we were acquired by EQT just in March of this year. So we're, we're second but rising in the market because we provide a very different landscape. At Sousa, we're the open open source company. We're agnostic. We don't have platform lock-in. We don't try and take the entire stack for our enterprise customers. It's much more about allowing support across the open source market. So we provide a diff- very different level of service. So we like to think that we're quite unique in the market. In fact, we're the best of our kind. So when you're in the U.S., so I know you mentioned that it's a big, you just, this is organic growth. We're just going to go try to sign up customers, take them away from whomever. Is that the strategy? No, I mean, you know, when, when you look at who our enterprise customers are, we've got four out of every five customers sitting okay. in retail. We've got four to five in, in banking, in telco. So we've got a really steady footprint. We're looking to expand to go up the value chain of the enterprise application stack, move much, you know, from the bottom, which is the operating system, all the way to the value services across the enterprise. Melissa DiDonato, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Melissa DiDonato is Chief Executive Officer of SUSE. She is based in London. The company is based in Germany, uh, talking about open source, uh, the expansion within it, and it really does seem to be a, a fertile area. It's sort of interesting, the value of providing software for free. They're basically saying, come, build this up. This will help us actually gain a critical mass and be able to uh, have some sort of uh, broad-reaching uh, software that we can work from. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.